of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. And so we talked about love, joy, peace, and patience thus far. So this morning we're going to look at a passage on kindness. And so if you have a Bible, you can open up to Ephesians chapter 4. That's where we'll be this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath one of the seats in the row in front of you. You can grab one of those Bibles and flip open to this morning's passage. If you don't own a Bible, take that Bible with you. Church's gift to you for free. Uh, We'd be very excited for you to be the proud owner of a Bible and to explore the truth claims of Christianity on your own time. So let me do this. Let me, let me read this morning's passage. We're going from Ephesians 4.32 to Ephesians 5, verse 2. Let me read and pray, and we'll jump in, and we'll get to work. It says this, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Let me pray. God, we deeply need your help this morning. Holy Spirit, would you work in our hearts especially in those moments where we find ourselves defending or legitimizing or minimizing sin in our lives, uh, our very hostilities toward this virtue that uh, is a part of what it means to, to walk by the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit. Spirit of God, would you open our eyes to see the truth of your word this morning? Would you open our hearts to receive the truth of your word uh, in a way uh, that doesn't just remain in the realm of intellectual assent, but works its way down into the deep recesses of our being and changes us for your glory and for our good? God, we love you. We thank you for the opportunity to uh, even come together and talk about what it means to uh, live a life that's more and more conformed into the image of your son. So we lift these things up in his name, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, every church across America could say this, uh, and it could become very trite. uh, And I don't want to say trite things, but I do think that it is true to some degree that it's quite providential. Uh, In a week like this week, you turn on the news, you see the things that have unfolded for us to be talking about the virtue of kindness in a world in which hate and violence is on display. It's rampant. So we get an opportunity to talk about that. We get an opportunity to define it biblically. We get an opportunity to talk about what it looks like in our context to respond to that. And so I want to do those things. Um, And what that means is that I may go off the cuff a couple times and I may plead ignorance because I'm a work in progress and God is doing things in me still. Um, I talked to my wife this week and told her that there were things that I said two months ago when looking out on the cultural landscape that I regret saying. And so I hope that's not the case this morning. I want the scriptures to inform everything that we do, but I do want to, to speak into and engage in the context of the real world that we live in, uh, what we can do as Christians in response And I do think that it all comes back to the gospel. And Paul declares that three times in this morning's passage. We're going to see it. He he declares the gospel in chapter 4, verse 32. He declares the gospel again in chapter 5, verse 1. And then a third time in chapter 5, verse 2, he declares the gospel again. Because Paul understands that only the gospel can empower the kind of kindness that the Bible describes. 
And so he says this in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32. He says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So the word kind in this verse, to go ahead and define it right off the go, is from the same Greek word as the word kindness in Paul's listing of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. So we're on track here. We're, we're coming under the banner of Galatians 5 for this entire series. It's the Greek word krestos, which means useful or to make use of. Uh, it's the idea of being well-fitted to meet a need, well-fitted to care for another, and, and to then do something about it. So perhaps this is a helpful visual up on the screen. Um, when you put together a puzzle, and our kids aren't old enough really to do this yet, we're still kind of going, hey, the square block fits into the square hole, and the circle block fits in, no baby, it doesn't go into the triangle hole, it goes into the, you know, and that's what we're doing right now, but um, when you get to a certain age, you start to put together puzzles that look something like this, where you have one piece that that has a deficit of sorts. And then you have another piece that has a peninsula that, that's kind of an abundance that comes in and connects and it, it meets the need of that deficit so that there's a well-fitting of the two. That, that's what kindness is like in the biblical sense of the term. Kindness is seeing a need, having your heart stirred with compassion and stepping out to meet that need. And so we are talking about a virtue that calls us to practical action. And yet there's so much more to it than, than just doing. In other words, you can exhibit polite social behavior. Uh, you can even give sacrificially to meet the need of another. And, and that doesn't necessarily mean that you're embracing the biblical virtue of kindness. In fact, it's very possible to exhibit polite social behavior, to be a nice person in the target checkout line and completely miss it. That, that you could very well be a Pharisee and do that. That the Pharisees were really good at checking their behavioral boxes, so to speak, and putting it on display for the world to see, and yet they completely missed it. Their hearts were far from God. Jesus declared them to be whitewashed tombs. You, you've seen uh, um, a, a casket at a funeral. The external looks gloriously beautiful more often than not, and yet inside of every casket is what? A dead body. Right? That, those were the Pharisees. You're dead on the inside, and yet everything looks pristine on the outside. That's not the biblical virtue of kindness. Paul declares that kindness is something internal. It begins internally. That he connects kindness with being tender-hearted in verse 432. It's a rooted internal work of the heart. In fact, the word tender-hearted from the Greek word uh, splonknon at its root means this. It means the inward parts, the vital organs. The entrails. Kind of gross, right? It's the same word used in Mark chapter 6 when Jesus feeds the 5,000. We're told in Mark 6, 34, when Jesus went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. That word compassion in Mark chapter 6, it's the same word translated tenderhearted in this morning's passage. And it's not just a word that can be reduced to Jesus having pity on a group of people on a hillside. It's much deeper than that. Rather, in this moment, Jesus has moved in the deepest recesses of his being, the inward parts, the vital organs, the, the entrails, the seat of the emotions. It's a literal gut-wrenching emotion that Jesus feels in this moment. Something wells up within him in the deepest seat of his affections as he looks out on this crowd in Mark chapter 6. 
and he's compelled to respond. Like, like two puzzle pieces. There's a deficiency. There's an absence of something, namely a shepherd. And so Jesus, the good shepherd, connects those puzzle pieces together. And he begins to teach the people. And he feeds the people. Physical and, and spiritual care for bodies and souls. And so kindness is external to some degree. But not in the sense that we put on a show for people in the form of polite social behavior. Rather, kindness is external in the sense that the heart deeply moved can't help but act. Okay, so, so get that in your mind. That's the biblical definition of kindness. Jesus is moved in the deepest recesses of his being, and so he acts. Mark 6 is an incredible display of kindness rooted in compassion. And I would encourage you to go back and read Mark 6 this week to see Jesus put that on display and to see what that even looks like in the context of a real-life situation. But for now, let me ask this question, and this is a personal question. Do you believe that Jesus feels compassion for you personally? Do you believe that? I mean, really sit with that question. Ask yourself, do I believe that Jesus feels compassion for me personally? It's one thing to believe that Jesus has compassion for, for the world, that God so loved the world. And it's, it's even one thing to believe that Jesus has compassion for you at a cognitive level, at an intellectual ascent level that Jesus cares about you. But it's an altogether different thing to believe in the deepest recesses of your being that Jesus loves me, this I know. That that's not just a song for little kids to sing, but, but we declare that until the day we die. Have you ever, have you ever sat with those words uh, until it just wrecks your heart for the better? Like, like, just declare to God, I'm not leaving this moment of solitude with you until I feel that. Somewhere deep down in, in the deepest recesses of my being, until I feel the weight of your love for me. The gospel's personal. Jesus feels this deep-seated, gut-wrenching affection for you. For everyone in this room, you can put your name on that. Your name is etched on his hands. Jesus didn't write the pros and cons of saving you on a whiteboard and wrestle with it. That's not what the gospel declares. He saw you in your plight and he was moved in the deepest recesses of his being for you. And so I don't want to assume anything this morning. Um, some may go, what are you talking about? What plight, what predicament do I find myself in that I deeply need Jesus to care about me? Um, we talked about this in the series prior to this one, the story. Uh, that the world was created as good, perfect, utopian. God had his garden sanctuary set. And, and he brought the first two image bearers into the world to exercise dominion over creation, to, to multiply, to subdue the earth, to function as God's priest kings in this perfect utopian garden sanctuary. But we're told that rooted in the deception of the, of the serpent and the desire to be like God, our first parents rebelled against God, committing the sin of cosmic treason. And then in the wake of their sin, death entered the picture. It's why we all will one day die a physical death. But, but we're not just talking about physical death. The spiritual umbilical cord was severed between us and God relationally. There was a spiritual death that happened in the garden in Genesis 3. And, and all of that moves forward throughout human history. We're all connected to that story. It's why when you look out on the landscape of humanity, the world is not as it should be. And it's not just a cultural problem, it's an internal, personal problem for each of us. 
that we've all rebelled against our creator and, and we cannot claw our way back into his good graces. I think we all have to wrestle with the question at some point in our lives, how good is good enough? How do you know when you've done enough to cause God to look upon you and go, please be on my team? You kick the ball really well. I think I need you on my team. That's not what the gospel declares. The gospel says that for those who will set aside their efforts of righteousness and go, I can't get there. That one has gotten there for you. That Jesus lived the perfect life that you and I could never live. That he died the death that we deserve to die. And he didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead conquering sin and death. And right now he sits on his throne ruling and reigning as triumphant king of the universe. You see what happens is that when you realize that Jesus cares about you so much that he feels about you a love and a compassion that's so personal. When you read John 1 and you see the word becoming flesh, not just in a generic sense, but because your particular name is etched on his heart. When you soak in the truth that Jesus came for you, yes, for the world, that God so loved the world that he sent his son, but but God so loved you that he sent his son. When you soak in that long enough, it changes you. We're in the summer months, and so maybe this is a helpful example. Anybody gotten sunburned in recent history? Um, You forgot to apply a good SPF, or you did that thing where somehow... Uh, you only got a good handprint, and now you have like a, a five-digit, you know, coverage on your arm or something weird like that. When you get sunburn, what does it do to the skin? It tenderizes it, right? It, 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 it has a way of sensitizing uh, the external layer of your body in such a way that to touch it, uh, you know, the, the pain, the sensitivity... Um, The itching, all of that becomes more heightened. It takes less to create that sensitivity uh, with respect to the outer layer. That's what being tenderhearted is like. In the same way that, that you have a heightened sense of touch when your skin is tender, so you have a heightened sense of affection, a heightened sense of compassion for others when your heart is tender. You go, where does that come from? Where does that affection come from? Where does that compassion for others come from? How do we grab hold of that virtue? And the, go- uh, the answer is really simple. It's the gospel. That you could say it this way. As the sun tenderizes the skin, so the gospel tenderizes the heart. As the sun tenderizes the skin, so the gospel tenderizes the heart. Which is why Paul goes on to say... Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. That when I see Jesus punished in my place, bearing the weight of my sin, bearing the weight of God's wrath on my behalf, I see the deep-seated gut-wrenching compassion of God for me, toward me. And when I see the deep-seated gut-wrenching compassion of God most clearly for me, I find my heart moved uh, toward others the way God's heart is moved toward me. Kind of like a, a meat tenderizer. Um, anybody like to grill a steak from time to time? We're on a budget, so we only do it every once in a while. But um, when we do, uh, we, we tenderize the meat. Mine's kind of a makeshift version, so I just take the fork and just create the holes, you know, and then 
uh, fill it with uh, the tenderizer that you can buy at the grocery store. Some of you have like legitimate mallets and you just go to town on that, that slab of meat. And what happens is uh, when you bring a, a meat tenderizer to the game, so to speak, what it does is it softens the fibers of the meat itself so that it makes it more tender uh, to your palate when you bite into it. The gospel is, is a heart tenderizer. When you soak in the truth and the beauty of the gospel, it has a way of softening the fibers of your heart. When you soak in the kindness of God towards you, it enables kindness toward others. When you soak in the gut-wrenching tenderheartedness of God towards you, it tenderizes your heart. When you soak in the forgiveness of God extended to you, it enables you to forgive others. I can be kind to others because God has been far kinder to me. I can be tender-hearted toward others because God has been far more tender-hearted toward me. I can forgive others even in the worst of circumstances because God has been far more forgiving of me. So that if you can't pinpoint deep-seated gut-wrenching compassion, those moments that have moved you to act, there's likely an unbelief issue as it pertains to the gospel. Which is why Paul goes on to say in chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Paul says, mimic God. One of the most daunting verses in all the Bible, right? Mimic God. Just go out and do that today. Let me know how that goes. Anybody remember the Be Like Mike campaign from the early 90s? Gatorade? Sometimes I dream. That he is me. You know, you got like this exciting uh, music and it makes you go, yeah, I want to like Mike, if I could be like. And then you go out and you're shooting hoops, even if you, you know, can barely dribble a basketball and you're, you're trying to be like Mike. And no one could be like Mike. The closest person that could be like Mike is LeBron James. And he was seven years old when that campaign came out, came out. Not even sure that he could shoot a free throw from the free throw line because of the distance to get the ball to the hoop at that height. And this verse says, not be like Mike, but rather be like God. Seriously? How does that happen? I can't even be like the Apostle Paul on my good days. I don't know about you. I'll tell you how it doesn't happen. It doesn't happen by rolling out of bed and determining that we're going to white knuckle it. When we see phrases like be like or imitate, those words immediately drive us to act or to do. But the empowerment actually comes not through quickly moving to action, but rather through slowing down long enough to soak in the truth in the reality that we are, chapter 5, verse 1, beloved children of God. That it's an identity issue. Identity drives us to action. God is my father. I'm not a spiritual orphan anymore. I don't have to dive into the dumpsters of depravity anymore. I've been brought in off the street and given a home and a name. And God is my Abba. And I'm his child. It's amazing how the more you soak in that truth, the more you resemble the very one who gave you that identity. You want to grow in godliness? You want to grow in kindness? Look at Jesus. Look at how much he loves you. Look at the new identity he's given you. And as you, as you look at him, watch it, how he changes you, how he tenderizes your very heart. Here's a crazy thought. That early 90s Gatorade campaign called us to something that none of us are promised. Right? Most all of us who inhabit planet Earth will never be like Mike as it pertains to the game of basketball. But listen to this. 
every single one of us whose faith is rooted in the person and work of Jesus is promised to be conformed to his image. Romans chapter 8, verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be what? Conformed. Conformed to the image of his son. That God promises in Romans 8, 29 to enable that which he commands in chapter 5, verse 1 of Ephesians. And what that means, and this is mind-blowing, is that the Be Like God campaign will be more successful than the Be Like Mike campaign. That's unbelievable. That, that as you look at the cross, as you look at how much he loves you, the new identity he's given you as a beloved child of God, you can be sure that God is at work in you, slowly tenderizing your heart to beat in rhythm with his. So you have this gospel trifecta in this morning's passage, Ephesians 4.32. Look at Jesus. Look at the forgiveness extended to you in Christ. Get an eyeful of the glorious reality that God declares that you're forgiven fully in Christ. And let that tenderize your heart and empower kindness in you. Ephesians 5.1, a second go at it. Look at Jesus. Look at the new identity he's given you. Get an eyeful of the glorious reality that you've been brought in off the street and given a home and a name. And let that empower you to walk in godliness, part of which is kindness. And here in verse 2 of Ephesians 5, we get a third pass at the gospel. Paul says, Walk in love as Christ loved us, And gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Once again, Paul declares, look at Jesus. Look at him loving you and giving himself up for you. Voluntarily handing himself over for you. Look at the greatest display of love the world has ever known. Get an eyeful of the Savior dying for you. And let that empower you to walk in love. To sacrifice for the good of others. I think this passage really drives at a couple of things as it pertains to the empowering of kindness. And I just want to point them out. One, this passage reminds us that our self-righteous illusions of grandeur are just that. They're illusions. It's very easy to separate the world into two categories, the deserving and the undeserving. And I'll come alongside the deserving if they get a bad hand dealt to them in life. But the undeserving, forget it. The gospel reminds us that there's only one category, undeserving. All of us come to the cross poor and needy. The the self-righteous, according to chapter 5, verse 2 of Ephesians, declares, aren't I fragrant to God? The Christian declares, isn't Jesus fragrant to God on my behalf? That's the gospel. His perfect obedience on my behalf, my only hope. So Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus, rather than look down his nose at us, bleeds and dies for us. Jesus, rather than looking down his nose at us, bears the weight of God's wrath for us. When you soak in the truth of the gospel, the kindness of God extended to undeserving sinners like you and me, it has a way of shifting your default mechanism from skepticism to compassion. And you you can even risk uh, having your kindness abused. You can even do that. The gospel affords you that. Jesus knew that the multitudes would trample his blood underfoot. He knew that. He knew that many of us would use his blood as an excuse to sin all the more. And yet he still marched toward Jerusalem because he loved you. 
The gospel declares that you can get burned by a few people along the way, and it's going to be okay. Secondly, the gospel reveals to us a God who would bear the weight of our sins so that we might have hope. And you go, what does that have to do with kindness? What does that have to do with empowering that kind of virtue? Well, if we're honest, for most of us, the issue is not wanting to bear the burden of another, right? We, we know that to enter into someone else's time of need will cost us, whatever that might be. Um, time, money, emotional equity. Isn't that the very nature of bearing another's burdens in the first place? You're, you're taking some of the burden on yourself. You're, you're looking in on a situation in, someone, in which someone has a need that you can meet And what that means is you're going to experience a depletion. And the person having his or her need met is going to experience a lifting of the burden, so to speak. Just as a simple example, um, anytime we bring a meal to someone in the church, what that means is that we have to create two meals, right? That's simple kindergarten math. Um, We have to create a, a meal for that family or that person, and we still have to make a meal for our family that night as well. It's a bearing of the load so that someone else doesn't have to, and it costs. And that's a very low-cost example. Let me give you a very high-cost example. Calvary. Jesus bearing the burden of our sin and shame so that we don't have to. Jesus didn't just bear some of the burden. He bore all of it. Look at Ephesians 53, verses 3 through 6. I'll put them up on the screen. Notice this language of bearing. It says, He, Jesus was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities upon him. There's that bearing piece again. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Peter says it this way. 1 Peter 2.24 Jesus, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. This morning's passage is a booming declaration that Jesus bore your burden fully so that you might experience great freedom and joy. That Jesus gave himself up for you, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. He didn't say, I wish I could help, but I'm a little strapped right now. He saw our desperate situation and he did something about it. Moved in the deepest recesses of his being. At great cost to himself. When we see Jesus bearing the weight of our sin and shame, it has a way of compelling us to bear the burdens of others. To care for others. To love others well. That as Christ so loved me and gave himself up for me, so I can love others and give myself up for them. And remember, this is a virtue that makes up the fruit of the Spirit. Meaning it's for all Christians, not just the well-resourced. Tim Keller says this in his commentary on this virtue that makes up the fruit of the Spirit. He says, The Bible teaches that you have to look for people who have a burden on them and be willing to just slip underneath so some of that burden slides on you. You haven't really helped. You're not really being kind until you can point to parts of your lifestyle that have been changed, have been cut down, 
choices you have lost because you're helping other people. The Bible doesn't give you a nice abstract way to give. The Bible says give until the burden falls on you. Give until your choices have been diminished because of your giving. That's the biblical understanding of kindness. And it it takes an eyeful of the gospel to live that out, does it not? We can't live that out in our own strength, which is why Paul over and over again says, look at Jesus, look at Jesus, look at Jesus. You want to grow in kindness? Look at the kindness of God extended toward you in Jesus. He sent his son to die for you. You, you want to be more tenderhearted? Look at the gut-wrenching tenderheartedness of God toward you. He saw you like a sheep without a shepherd, and he entered in and did something about it. He ran to you. You want to grow in godliness, which in part is kindness? Look at Jesus. Look at the new identity he's given you. He brought you in off of the streets and gave you a home and a name. You want to die to self-righteousness, which is a vicious opponent of kindness? Look at the cross, which reminds us that there's only one category, undeserving, that we're all saved by grace alone. You want to be a person who cares more about the burdens of others? Look at Jesus bearing the weight of your sin and shame so that you might have hope. It's the beauty of the gospel that that creates a people who walk in kindness, which is why we must constantly preach the gospel to ourselves. That you're far more sinful than you ever imagined. The rabbit hole of sin in your life runs far deeper than you think it does. But... You're also far more loved and accepted than you ever dared dream. The blood-soaked cross of Christ tells you so. You're so bad that the Son of God had to die for you, yet you're so loved that the Son of God was glad to die for you. You soak in that, and it will soften the fibers of your heart. And then be amazed at what God will do through you as he opens all kinds of doors for you to extend kindness and care to others. Let me close just inviting you, giving you a window into my life this week in the wake of the things that have unfolded that you turn on the news and you see. And I wrestled with this passage because at one point in the week, I found, I found myself feeling that thing that Paul talks about in chapter 4, verse 32 of Ephesians, that thing that Jesus, I think, felt Uh, in Mark chapter 6 when he looked out on the crowd, I I felt this uh, gut-wrenching emotion within me, and I just wanted to do something. And I found myself helpless, thinking, I mean, what do I do from the 30269 zip code? I get on a plane and fly to Dallas or Louisiana or Minnesota? What what do I do, God? Because I don't want to be a person that just feels the feeling And then doesn't respond. Remember, kindness uh, is something that begins down in the deep recesses of our being, but it moves us to act. And so I just asked, what do I do, God? And God, in his kindness to me, reminded me that, hey, Jamie, you, you do know that prayer in and of itself is an action, right? And so on Friday, I decided to go for a walk and just pray. And I didn't even know what I was gonna pray. I found myself praying that, Uh, the kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven, that we would experience traces of uh, the the not yet here in the already, what is to come, but here now, that that God's people would be mobilized to, to love well, to extend the true biblical virtue of kindness to others, 
um, that we would be a people who would sort through and wrestle with what it means to, to do that contextually in our context here in the Southwest Atlanta corridor and a number of other things. And, and during the course of my time praying to the Lord um, in my spirit, I felt compelled to, to just mention two things. One of them is, is very much contextual, um, and, and I want to preface this by saying I'm, I'm not saying this because I have anyone in mind particularly. I'm not saying this because I think this is true of our congregation. I'm just saying this because I think at times uh, leaders of the church need to speak out and say things uh, that represent hate and violence and injustice. And one of the things that grieves me and concerns me about our particular context is I've heard both personally and through social media the, the kind of language that would say uh, we don't want particular uh, businesses to come into our area uh, because of the riffraff that lives in surrounding areas and the idea that they may actually come into our world. And, and let me just say this, to use that kind of language, to even think, think that way, to even feel that way, is to be a contributor to the hate and violence that fills this world. And there is nothing in the gospel that empowers that kind of thinking, that empowers that kind of feeling, that empowers that kind of speech. And so my prayer is that our church is a church that speaks out against that, uh, that is very much uh, for uh, the people that are not like us. Um, and, And I'll get to that in just a minute. The second thing that I want to say, but that we would be a people uh, who God in his kindness would help us to see in moments of uh, conviction and repentance um, what, what it looks like for us to practically look down our noses at others in self-righteousness. Again, this passage does not empower that. This passage reminds us that we all come to the foot of the cross poor and needy, that uh, the, the foot of the cross is level ground. And so the, the other thing that I think is critical to say is this. One of the, the most practical things that I think we can do other than pray is be a people who uh, seeks to purposefully uh, engage people who aren't like us. To, to begin to dialogue. And I'm not just talking race. I'm talking age. I'm talking socioeconomic status. I'm talking different zip code than us, uh, where, uh, where we reside, where they reside. Um, I think there's something really helpful about the dialogue. Let me give you an example. Last year, every year, um, I go to a conference uh, down in Boca Raton with Spanish River Church. It's one of the churches that supports us. Um, they, they support hundreds of church plants across the world. And so I get an opportunity to sit with people globally and to have conversations with them. And last year, I walked into a breakout session on how to pastor people in moments of crisis. And when I walked in the room, there were about a dozen tables and there are people sitting at each of these tables, and there are open spaces at a lot of these tables. But, but I look over, and there's one table, and, and it's uh, five or six black church planters. And in that moment, I, I just thought, 
I got to sit with those guys. Like, I, I, I want to bring my ignorance and my questions to the table and just ask my questions of them and say, when I say this, what is that, how does that make you feel? Because this is, this is how I'm articulating things that I don't understand. Is this helpful or is this not? One of the most sobering experiences for me in, in the last year of my life, I walked away repenting of, of ignorance in more ways than I could describe to you this morning and, and was more fueled in my understanding of the gospel and how it empowers us to, to live in the context of our particular cultures as missionaries for the sake of reconciliation that the cross affords. One of my buddies, even this week, uh, within the Crosspoint family, lead pastor of uh, one of our Crosspoint congregations down in central Florida, he, he posted on Facebook, and I, I just want to share this with you um, because it embodies exactly what I'm talking about this morning. He said this. He says, I, I had a very simple yet profound exchange at Walmart with a black man. It's a white pastor. As I was finishing in the checkout line, he was unloading his cart. Our eyes caught one another as if we were thinking the same thing. We are different, but we are the same. We both immediately, immediately exchanged hellos, and I said, with all the black-white stuff going on, it's good to know that we are just people. He said, that's right, all created the same way. And we shook hands and looked at each other in the eye, and I said, black lives matter, to which he said back, all lives matter. We deeply need to be reminded of the gospel, and it's only as we soak in, in the gut-wrenching tenderheartedness of God extended to us that we can even be, uh, begin to come close to living out this virtue. And so as we take communion this morning, we do so here. If you're a Christian, this meal is for you by taking the bread and dipping it in the cup, the bread representing the broken body of Jesus, the cup representing his shed blood. Um, during this time, I, I would invite you to just sit and ask God to uh, reveal sin and unbelief in your heart, um, to ask God to reveal uh, self-righteous tendencies, um, patterns of, of arrogance, um, to reveal the, the, the two-pronged categorization of humanity into deserving and undeserving, the, the gospel misfire that happens that drives us to do that, to ask God uh, to reveal um, the ignorance uh, that uh, we don't even know is there uh, because we can't see our own blind spots, which is why they're called blind spots in the first place, to ask the Spirit of God to work so that we might be a people who, like Jesus, seek to bring reconciliation and hope into a world that desperately needs it. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions about this message, visit us at crosspointptc.com. There you can contact us, find further resources and directions to our gatherings. That's C-R-O-S-S-P-O-I-N-T-E-P-T-C dot com.